0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Agile Wire. Before we jump in, there's some pretty cool stuff we want to make sure that you're aware of. Firstly, the fall experiment is coming up fast. Jeff and I will be there speaking and running the podcast, which should be pretty interesting. And this is really cool. Jeff and Chad Beyer from whiteboardconsulting.org will be running a workshop to help define your product. If you're going to be out there, be sure to swing by and say hi. Next, the Agile Online Summit has opened up their registration. It's a great chance to view a ton of topics remotely. You can check them out at agileonlinesummit.com forward slash 2019. All right. In this episode, we talk with Rob Pieper, who is the CEO of Responsive Advisors, a management consulting and training organization. He likes to stir the pot and create commotion. And this talk gets really uncomfortable in a great way. You'll know it when you hear it. Hopefully it causes you to stop and think as much as it did for us. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and
1: Jeff Molesky discuss Agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky.
0: So, anyway, you, Rob, let's let's jump right in, because you were saying how everybody's doing it wrong. Everybody's so. doing it wrong. Let's hear
2: it. So, I teach a lot of classes out in the wild, a lot of public classes all over the country, and private classes all over the world now actually i'll be going to i think the uk to teach a product owner course in a month or so but um it's uh yeah i i sit in airplanes a lot which is probably going to give me hemorrhoids um (laughs) so far i'm good but um i yeah over and over i hear about people using scrum and they're just they're missing the key elements of it and it's like fuck Scrum, get something done in a short amount of time. I don't care if you use Waterfall to do it. You can use Waterfall, deliver something in under 30 days, and eliminate a ton of risk without using Scrum ever. I I actually wrote a blog post about it, how to be agile with Waterfall, just kind of stir in that pot. Um, So I'm a professional pot stirrer. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, I like that because I use that, a similar analogy in a lot of the classes we teach where I'm like, well, what's better? Is it better to do three-month um, sprints using Scrum or do one-month uh, waterfall projects? And they're like, people have to think about it. and Sometimes they're like, Scrum, right? This is a Scrum class. You're like, no. Like, it's all about getting it done. That's the most important part.
2: Yeah, that that is definitely the most important part. And that's just lost on so many people. It's uh, They think it's just about following the rules or you gotta have these roles, you gotta have these stupid meetings, but they miss the one piece. You you need a releasable increment. And then even if they think they have one, is it really releasable? Have you really tested oh well it's too expensive to test. You know, we've got to manually this, that and the other. It just hurts me. Like all these all these companies, they, they deserve to go the way of the dodo. They deserve it. <laughs> They're asking for their own death. Um but anyway, I try to I try to I try to help as much as I can. Do well, you the think
0: though, um so I I'm thinking, like, what well, why, like, why, why are they missing that? And I, I don't uh, obviously bias, but, but be, being a PST, I think we do a pretty good job of highlighting that the, the necessity of the increment and like the game changer in scrum, like that's, that's language we use in just about all of our, our, all of our courses. So I don't think like, I don't think we're missing when we're training it, but is there something in the scrum guide itself that maybe isn't hitting the point home that, all of these things are not peripheral, but they're to support empiricism, and there's a, and that requires something to inspect, which implies you need an increment. Like I, I don't know, like a big bold gif or something animated in the Scrum guide, like blinking out at, at somebody telling them this is really important. And if you're not doing this, don't you know fuck all with all the roles and the, everything <laughs> else. You need the increment.
2: Yeah. Well, I, what could be done? Um, I think I think you said exactly what I would have said. There needs to be like a twenty-six point font bolded that says, like, the first thing you read when you open the Scrum Guide should say, the entire fucking point of this manual is to teach you how to get to a shippable increment. Period, or something. The entire point of this is to to have a shippable increment, something releasable. Do not read if you can't do that. I don't know. Maybe that's a little extreme, but it does say, you know, Scrum is designed to deal with complex. Product delivery issues and mitigate risk, and I, I I do always highlight that in the classes. Like this is the point, but the way you do it is through making these things. Um, so that's why everybody's doing it wrong. It's very frustrating. People overcomplicate it all the time. It's just they they overcomplicate what Scrum is, and when you just boil it down to how beautifully simple it is, and they're just like, oh, well that isn't so hard.
1: You know, and the other um, thing people always want is a measurement. They're like, how do I know if I'm doing Scrum well? Or what can I measure? And I'm and so. I don't know. I was just kind of like going back and forth with somebody the other day and, and I'm like, just measure the number of done increments you have every single sprint or every sprint. You at least have one done increment, right? Let's just do a frequency chart. And if you have more than, I don't know, 20% of your sprints that don't have done increment, you've got a problem. Fix that. Don't worry about anything else except fixing that. Like that is your only thing to worry about. And once you get sure. there, then we can worry about everything else, any other metrics or validating value delivery. But you need to get something that to validate against. And if you don't have that, then you're miss like we've been saying, you're missing the whole entire point. So get there first. Mm. And, and I think that's, um, you know, something to watch out for, especially for new teams getting started with Scrum. Like, just monitor that. Don't worry about anything else.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you reminded me of something else. I, one thing I teach in a lot of my classes is um, certain things you should take very literally, like product owner. Take that fucking literally. They own the product. Now, if you're the owner of the product, you would hire a manager to do the work for you. A product manager wouldn't somehow be up higher up than you. So that's, that's another way people are doing it wrong. They're thinking of a product owner as a backlog secretary or just some sort of a user story writing chimp. Or just like, hey, go write my user stories. I'll be the product manager. They want to hold on to that, that historical title of I, I run the product, but I'm not actually going to work with my team. Or a Scrum Master, be a master of Scrum. And that never happens. It's like some dude just got their two-day certificate, and they're like, I'm the Scrum Master. No, you're like a Scrum novice. You've got a few years to go. <laughs> um, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, the Scrum Guide. It is not a Bible. It is not. Um, it is not the how-to manual. It is just a, its guidance. And so I'd, I, I love tearing through it and looking at the pieces that are just guidance and the things that are actually rules, and and quizzing people on that, just so they know, like you know where where to take it literally and where to just go. Yeah, but they're just giving you a general recommendation there.
0: Right. We we were literally just talking about this and how easy it is with these things to just switch the words around, right? Like, okay you've got the the sprint planning what are you doing you are planning the sprint okay cool sprint review what should you do you should review the sprint how did it go um the one that falls apart obviously is the daily scrum do you scrum daily i guess
2: um but maybe well Uh, what's the scrummage in in rugby i think you're still you're on the right path it's when you all get together and and you get on that ball and you try to whatever they do and try to move it downfield or something that's effectively what you're doing in a daily scrum sure you're scrumming daily
0: yeah, yeah, the other one, it not not Scrum specific, but continuous integration means that you're integrating continuously, right? Like just just I don't know. It, some of these things should be self evident. You're right, but but yeah. then again, this okay. So let's take take a step back here, like because I think it's really easy for three PSTs to sit around and be like, ah, oh, this stuff is so simple. How how can these people not get it when we've got what yeah. you know? 10 years each uh, more i'm sure rob jeff i'm not sure exactly how many years but um going into a new environment where they've never really been doing this before they're like this is this is new um Mm. i think a lot of times we take stuff for granted we we take the knowledge and experience that we have for granted and and it's it's happened a few times now and i think it's a humbling and reminding moment when you walk in and it's like oh People, this isn't as intuitive as it may come across to some people, um, especially people who have been doing the same thing for the past 10 years. This is how they've been doing it. And from our perspective, it's very wrong. So um, I don't want to come off completely high and mighty with, with this stuff because th- there, there are things that we need to remember as well. Well, I'm sure. going to steal
1: some words right from you, Jeff, that we were talking about the other day. Like, If we jump in the DeLorean, uh, go back you know, 10, 20 years, and it's let's just say it's 2000 scrum's just getting started and everyone no one knows what it is yet and we say hey there's this person that kind of is between the people that actually do the coding and testing and um, they're gonna go ahead and figure out you know what the customers are really wanting they're going to maybe do some organizing they're going to do some forecasting Um, they're going to do some of those things Uh, what would you call that person like 20 years ago, what are you going to call that person that's going to maybe go and talk to the customers, going to go, uh, maybe write some of those things down? And and they say, well, that sounds a lot like a business analyst or maybe a, maybe a PM, I don't know, somewhere in that range. And you're like, okay. And so you draw this picture and you're like, well, isn't a lot of people have that perception that that's what the product owner does. They think, so do we just rename our BAs to be product owners? And it's like, no, no, that's to- they're a totally different role. That's not what they do at all. You know, their job is to really own the product. They're the CEO of the product. Whether you have, you know, two or three people doing the work, or you have five thousand people doing the work, if there's one owner, one CEO, and so it's, it's just a very different mindset. And I think people too often go back to like, it sounds like something a BA would do, and so let's just make it this BA role, and it's not. So I don't know. i just the analogy. I think I'm just thinking of where people are coming from, and I think maybe that's why it gets misinterpreted because they just try to assimilate. Simulate it to something that they've known in the past, and it sounds a lot like a BA when they start to put the pieces together.
2: Sure. Yeah, they're all doing it wrong. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, so what, what's also um, interesting is a lot of PSTs can get very theoretical, and then they just forget things like people actually have to get work done. Yeah. So. Uh, yep. I, I recently um, developed a product internally, um, a software product that we use to handle a lot of course information and things like that. I hope to productize it like in the next 12 months, but I had to build something and prove that it worked and have a customer and learn from how it's, the tools being used. And so one of my employees is, our, is the first customer for this tool, and she uses it and she loves it, and all of us use it for different reasons. Um, but I've learned a lot about um, this particular product and at least what one customer could do with it so I'm hoping to find other, other training companies that could benefit from this, um, this tool as well. But where am I going with that? I developed it using micro features. So I would work on, like, I'm a busy person. I travel and I work and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I got I to gotta get this thing going. So Christmas Day last year, I was like, I got nothing to do today. That's when I started. I spent about 10 hours on Christmas Day getting it all set up, getting the web server set up, getting source control set up, learning how to code using .NET Core, which was a little bit different. Um, yeah, and I got this, got this thing going, uh, implemented a security feature, so you have to log in and, and all those kinds of things. Initially did it using uh, Google's API, and then they shut down the, what was it, the Google, um, whatever their social media thing was. They shut it down on me, so I had to rebuild the, the authentication engine. Um, long story short, I was developing it in micro features because I knew that if at any one point I had to put the thing down and I got busy mm-hmm. doing something else, I couldn't leave unfinished work. Like, I couldn't leave the whole thing unbuttoned because I wouldn't know where I was and it would all be broken. And so I would make a little tiny feature, check it in, publish it. It worked. Okay, now the next one. And I would just do this over and over and over, these little micro features. Sometimes I'd get one a day. Sometimes I'd get a handful done in a day. And no matter where I was, I could always stop, put it away, and not have a bunch of unfinished stuff. And I'm like, just develop software like this professionally. So that's how I teach it in, in the class. Like, if you are actually writing software break your stuff down into small features, do it just a little bit at a time, you're always shippable. If at any point you get distracted, you already have an increment. Like you don't have to worry about 2 weeks later we're testing everything. Um anyway, so I know I can do it and I know I can teach it. Can I get other people to do it too? I don't know. Sometimes.
1: But Rob, that's not very efficient.
2: Yeah. It's I mean, not why would you
1: go through ahead, go ahead and and do all that when you you make know, a release multiple times and like Man, integrating all those times—like, couldn't you just ba- big get that up into a big batch and like deliver it all at once and reduce your
2: transaction costs? I'm smelling sarcasm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. That—that's another topic I love talking about is the the balance between efficiency and agility. So agility is often inefficient. Um, when you reduce batch sizes, you have to do a lot of the same things over and over again. But much like. In, cust- in anything you do custom, um, yeah, it is inefficient to do custom work, but you can't really you can't really be that efficient with software. It's not like mass production where it's just repeating the same thing over and over, and you're trying to make it um, less wasteful. But yeah, I guess you do you, you do pay for some waste developing that way, and it will probably take longer in some ways. But where you'll save time. And I hear me preaching to the choir, but you're going to save time in uh, all the integration and all the bullshit you do at the end when nothing works, or you try to integrate it and everything's broken. Now we have to go back and redevelop some features.
1: And your cost of delay, right? Because you can use it right away instead of it sitting there waiting to be used because it, because it's <laughs> yeah. functional. So if
2: if you are actually releasing, yeah, you uh, the cost of delay is is far lower if you're getting something out of it. And still learning as you're using it. So we were able to learn as we used it. And not all of the features I wanted developed are there right away. And uh, my, the one employee I have that's using the, the product that we're, that I built, um, she's always got new ideas for features. So I try to go in there, which ones can I do in a short amount of time. And um, But anyway, I, I got an MVP out. I'm learning a lot from it. She's learning a lot from it. Uh, the team is learning a lot from it. So there's a few other major pieces I wanna put in place before we try to go live with it um, and invite other training companies to use it, but I don't know. Keep talking about the software product. What else you got?
1: <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned something a little earlier like, oh we talked a lot about the product owners and how they're doing it wrong and we've come to that conclusion. We talked about the increment and how that's so important and how but we didn't talk about the scrum masters uh, and how they just hey, you got you went through a two-day class, now you're a scrum master, right? Um, and I know you wrote an article recently about uh, scrum masters and becoming an agile coach. And how long do you need to be a scrum master before you can be an agile coach, or what? Dic- sure. What are those qualifications to being an agile coach? So maybe we could dive into that topic.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, man, where do I where do I start with that? Being a scrum master takes a long time if you want to be a master of Scrum. So. Uh, I hear over and over and over again people that they just get into this because they think it pays better and they they think, oh, I'll be a Scrum Master, but their perception of it is more like an Agile project manager. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to argue that Jeff Sutherland at, at points sort of helps make that myth uh, a reality in some of the ways he talks about the Scrum Master. Ken Schwaber seemingly has a, a different view. But um, regardless, if you read the Scrum Guide, which the two of them have created and they still maintain, uh, nowhere in there does it say that a Scrum Master has accountability for delivery or value, but purely facilitating that that engine or facilitating that ability to deliver value. So it's uh, that's another area where a lot of people are getting it wrong. They still think a Scrum Master is responsible for creating the burndown charts or creating um, any artifacts or maintaining things or cracking the whip on people on delivery or monitoring progress. It's like, no, it's not their job. And if you think about it in terms of Someone being like a team gardener, uh, you don't make the rose grow, you you create the environment or you influence the environment to make it possible for roses to grow, but you don't directly make a rose grow. You don't directly make the team do anything, the development team, you don't directly make a product owner do anything, but you can influence it. And somebody's got to kind of watch the garden and make sure that the entire system is behaving as intended. Mm -hmm. And sure, it could be the product owner playing the role of a scrum master, but someone has to play that role. Where am I going with this? um yeah, that's that's a common area. people are getting it wrong, and so they they're focusing on the wrong thing. they're focusing on learning to be a better agile project manager than they are focusing on being a systems thinker, focusing on uh, watching the system play out teaching coaching, advising and and working with the team to a level that raise their level of performance.
1: I think the reason that a lot of organizations struggle with it because it's like what's the tangible output that a scrum master actually has like you know, my development team produces code, which produces some kind of application that the quality, you know, specialist person that's on this team, that's part of the development team, they're, they're validating, we're getting, you know, high quality product out there, we a UX person making it really looking out for the you know user and making sure that they, the whole flow, you know, works together really well. And, and we've got this person that, you know, maybe has a really good uh, a lot of high skills and analysis and making sure we're building kind of the right thing and kind of informing the team about that stuff but what does a scrum master person actually do like what do they do all day <laughs> and and i think that's where people get you know lost because it's like there's what is, it's all the soft stuff that they're doing it's it's um i i really like this i was in a class a few months ago with uh, a team and they were kind of doing a restart we were doing um, a PSF and their scrum master had just um, come back from maternity leave and they were like we don't really know what this person did but she was gone for three months and like everything didn't work that well and we were kind of like we we're missing oil in our in our engine our car engine like we're the engine and we're missing oil like she just keeps everything running smooth she came back and it was just like, Man, it was just so much better. Everybody feels better. Things are getting done faster. Like we're we're all organized. Like we're organized and we're making better decisions as a team. Like we're just syncing and we're collaborating better. Like all these things happen and we never really realized what she did. It just it just happened. And so. Now we really, you know, realized the need in the for the scrum master, and we really appreciate her so much, so much more than we had in the past. So it was kind of just a really cool story, right, from a development team of, you know, this is like the first few hours of the day um, in a PSF, so like they hadn't gone through much, but they were like already articulating like when we got to that first scrum master slide, this is what we think a scrum master should do, and this is our experience with it. and I thought that was pretty cool.
2: That's awesome. Uh, you, you, you had that question: What does a scrum master do all day? It's actually a video I created. Uh, a little YouTube video. The Scrum is the Scrum Master a full time role? What do they do all day? <laughs> uh, anyway, so it was a fun. So what video did you say
1: make. for those that haven't seen that video?
2: What do they do? Uh, yeah, influencing without authority. Man, I haven't seen it in a while. Um, yeah, it just the things that they do that influence a team or helps a team, and uh, it, it, the impediment removal. I mean, that that right there. If you just l- look at the amount of impediments in any organization, that's a full time job to remove those. Um, there's so many things that drag a team down it's obnoxious and the sky's the limit i mean start with i don't know expense reporting policies you know look at time tracking policies look at um, the disruptions of moving people around on projects all the time or uh, man the sky's the limit every organization's got a, a million reasons why why scrum teams are going to be slow and they wonder well did we just hire the wrong people? We just got to crack the whip on them? No, just remove all the roadblocks, remove all the things that are in their way, and they, they will speed up quite a bit. So, yeah, a good Scrum Master is helping knocking those things out.
0: Earlier we were, we were talking about Scrum Masters and Agile Coaches, and I'm curious because mm. I, I, I don't know the answer to this question, where the Agile Coach even came from. So, in Kanban, we've got the, the service delivery manager, in Extreme Programming, we have the coach. In Scrum, we've got the Scrum Master. But where where did this Agile Coach role come
2: from? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the history of where that word came from. Um, my guess is it came out of XP and just sort of evolved as the the word Agile became a thing because XP predates Agile, I believe. Right. Um, so XP had the coach before Agile was a word. And maybe people just borrowed that idea? I'm not sure. But a Scrum doesn't obviously have a concept of an Agile coach. The Scrum master fills that responsibility through service to the organization. Um, but without getting too academic, uh, oftentimes organizations will have Agile coaches that will work with Scrum teams that help teach Scrum masters how to do their jobs and kind of play this um, systems thinker, but for multiple teams or for a department or, or something like that. I mean, that's, that's how the industry has interpreted this role or how it's used in a lot of in a lot of ways but
0: so do you think that's harmful or helpful
2: uh to do what to have the label agile coach yeah essentially what you just described right
0: like oh we we elevate our agile coaches because they're the ones that can teach and coach our scrum masters Mm -hmm. instead of just having more experienced scrum masters who through their service of the organization are now going out teaching and coaching um i mean. I'm a little bit biased to that, but personally, I think it's harmful. So now you just have scrum masters who look at their career path and progression to be, oh, now I want to be an Agile coach. And that means something different than just being a great scrum master who serves the organization more.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the label Agile coach, and I've resisted using it in um, literature on our website and, and our sales process. Unfortunately, the world understands what an Agile coach is, and they know how to buy that. They don't know how to buy... More complicated things like an advisor. What is an advisor exactly? So I've been trying to distance myself from that word, but it's not really helping with SEO. Um, <laughs> isn't that awful? Sometimes you gotta sell what people wanna buy. Yeah. But the reason I've been distancing myself from that is, yeah, this this term agile coach is like it's getting another meaning. And what's really annoying is the level of quality I see is it varies greatly. What does a coach do? Well, I mean, if you really think of a professional coach, they don't really do a whole lot of anything. Um, They're going to ask you a lot of hard questions, and they're going to hold you accountable. Is this the type of person we need running around an organization to help people with Scrum? Sometimes. But if you look at that Agile Coaching stance model from, uh, oh, God, what was it? Uh, Where does that come from? The Agile Coaching Institute? And, you know, the stance as an agile coach might play. Sometimes it is professional coach, but I too often run into coaches that's where that, that's all they do. They don't teach. They don't consult or advise. They just flip questions around back on you. Well, what would you do in this situation? And they kind of just stand up all proud. That annoys me to no end. Yeah, I think so, there's a
1: time and a place for that, right? Like, it depends on the team's maturity and where they're at, right? Like, if yeah. they're that beginning-level team, you can't take that stance. That's just not what they need. They need a mentor. They need a someone to kind of just guide them and say, here's what you need to kind of do to get the foundations right. And then once you got that, then I can start asking you questions and see how once you actually learned about the whys behind what we're doing. And then after that, we can start brainstorming together as peers and, you know, figure stuff out. So, yeah, I think... I think you're right there. I think people do stick to stances too too much and they take more of a, I don't know, dogmatic approach sometimes to coaching. I think this is all I do is answer these questions mm-hmm. um, and, and they don't go into what they should be doing. Yeah, I, I do agree with Jeff too. Like, I don't think there's a need for agile coaches. I'll I'll make a bold statement. I don't think any organization needs an agile coach. I think you just need good scrum masters that can serve at all three levels like they're supposed to in scrum. And if you have yeah. that, then you don't need coaches. Um, so, you know, what do we do? We advise and help people get to that level. But I think the industry says, looks at it and says, well, the economics, it's really great to be an agile coach. So, as fast as I can become a scrum master, within the next year or two, I want to be an agile coach. And then once I'm an agile coach, then I can, you know, bump my pay up. I can now advise <laughs> multiple teams. And now I'm, you know, at this yeah. different level. And it's it's like, well, that's not the point you know it takes a lot longer to be at this advising level where you've seen so many different things and served the team the product owner the organization and solved many big organizational issues right so
2: sure yeah my my path to get here i I wrote about it once just you know how i got to this agile coach level because a lot of people i'm not even really an agile coach anymore but how i got here like it's just it's a weird non-linear sort of uh bounced around a lot but Um, I mean, my story goes back to I was a technologist. I mean, I was 13, learning to program a Commodore computer. And then later on, I uh, ultimately went to school for electrical engineering and came out. I was a software engineer in industrial applications and then web development. And then, God, what else did I do? Data janitor work at a financial firm. That was probably the worst coding job I've ever had. But I learned all the wrong ways to write software and all the problems that traditional development have. And I saw it with my own eyes. I experienced it. And then I did a master's in business, and through that I was learning about the way Toyota worked and the way they, they uh, fixed their company from the 1950s on and how they built a, a pretty amazing company over decades of hard work. And I started to see the, 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 the uh, tie-in between what was going on in, in my software development shops with Scrum and this whole Agile movement and uh, what Toyota was doing, what Deming was doing, Edwards Deming, uh, was doing with Toyota to help get them to a new level of... of uh, uh, I I don't even know how to explain it Uh, to where they are basically. And I was like, Oh, I know my life's work. I know what my passion is now. I finally get it. I can marry technology with business. I know what I want to do with my life. And that's how I got on this path. So I have just been learning better ways to apply a lot of Toyota thinking and software development. And I think if you want to be, if you want to get into this line of work and you think, Oh, all the money is there. You got to go through that path. You've got to experience that. You've got to get that education and the more broad you can be in all of those fields, I think the more it will help you be a good advisor, consultant. I mean, hell, even, I hate to use the word, but agile coach. Um, you can't just take an agile coach, run them through a two-day class, and congratulations, you're a coach. Well, you're kind of a worthless coach because you don't really have the business experience. You don't really have the technology experience. You don't have transformation experience or change management experience, but you're called agile coach. And the more we have those people running around making a lot of money, the more the industry goes, these people are idiots. Why do we need one of these? They're expensive and I don't see how they help. Another reason why I've been trying to distance myself from that word, but SEO won't let me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I was talking to um, somebody in a l- large organization and, they're, and they were talking about how they're really struggling to find good agile coaches in their area and that they would hire or they go through like sometimes two to three hundred interviews to find one scrum master actually is what they were looking for not agile coaches one scrum master i think i know who you're talking about (laughs) yeah i think we were talking to this person at the face to face about this but like it's kind of crazy to think about like i don't know just what people call a scrum master what people call an agile coach and what we really are looking for and how there's just such a big discrepancy out there um from what from the intent behind that role
2: There is. And I think, uh, I mean, with my clients, I think they, when they meet us, when they work with us, they appreciate the difference that they see immediately, especially if they've worked with someone else where it didn't work out for them. I mean, an example, I've got a client on the West Coast that they had another trainer in there. I won't tell you what they trained because I'm trying to stay out of that controversy, but they trained something that, you know, they were very dogmatic about. And they, as a trainer, they couldn't really answer the questions the class had about practical application and about some of the things that just didn't come right out of the manual, and the trainer would kick those questions away and just like, no, we're going to talk about this specific thing. And needless to say, the, the, the students of this class didn't really appreciate the training as much. And so when they came to my class, they're thinking it was going to be more of the same. But it was a completely different course. Not just a different class and a different under, uh, way to understand it, but I do have the experience. I did, have, I did go through those pains, and so I could relate it to the real world. I could, I could do these kinds of things. And that comes with experience. So, you know, congratulations, you're a trainer after a two-day class. If, if, that's, if that's the approach to creating trainers, you're creating a lot of trainers that just don't have the experience to answer the questions. And while they might be able to walk through the slide deck, um, they're, they're just no more than a YouTube video at that point that, you know, has flesh and bones.
0: So, yeah, let's, let's transition here. So I, I haven't had a chance to read it, um, but I, I'm pretty sure I know closely what it's about. So you, you had put something out there as far as being nice isn't so nice, I think was mm. was the title of the article. Um, I like, like I said, I suspect it's very close to, I, th- I think it's Lenciani's um, nice versus kind, uh, telling the kind truth versus being nice. But that's my assumption. So uh, yeah. lay the wisdom on us.
2: Lay the wisdom. So the, the history is I did an assessment with a client in the Midwest, um, in Michigan specifically, and going through all the interviews and all the learning about what was going on there over three days, what we discovered was they were highly conflict avoidant. They were really nice to one another, so much so that the technology group didn't even realize that the business people who consumed their services thought they had a, it gave them a grade of an F, basically. If, when pressed for a score on an you know, academic scale, um, they gave them an F for their services. And so that was shocking to this particular uh, technology group. Um, but they had never really asked the question. They never surveyed for, say, net promoter score or something like that. It was a fairly small group, but big enough where they should know these things. And um, what it really came down to was just everyone was so nice, and they're, oh, but they do such a good job. They, they work so hard, even though they were ineffective and slow, and no one was happy with their services. But everyone knew each other, and they so nice. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, like there's a difference between nice and kind. I think uh, if you really want to If you want to improve you got to address the issues that are there and if you don't address the issues you can't improve them so you've got to find a professional and kind way to address conflict and conflict doesn't have to be about fighting it can just be hey johnny um i noticed you came in like 15 minutes late and and the meeting started um it kind of hurt my feelings like we we have to now rewind and, and talk about that for 15 minutes again um any chance you could you know come in on time tomorrow that, that's an assertive, professional, nice way of calling someone out for being late to a meeting. But when you don't call people out, they just keep doing it, and that behavior becomes now an example that's set for other people. And now everyone's fifteen minutes late. So, you—if uh, you don't address conflict, if you don't—if uh, you don't find a professional way to deal with it, you can't improve. You can't hold people accountable. Um, you just—you can't be an amazing organization without, in some way, having some conflict. Yeah. So you can't. Uh, yeah, being nice can can actually hurt you. Yeah, too I nice. like
1: the analogy that Lynchioni gives when he's talking about like, hey, what would you rather do? Would you rather sit in a two-hour meeting or a uh, go to a movie for two hours? And like, pretty much everybody would be like, yeah, I'd rather go to a movie for two hours. And they're like, well, why? And be like, well, it's exciting. Like, there's drama. Things actually happen, you know? And you're like, well, why doesn't that happen in your meeting? Like, this is stuff you're going to have to do. It affects, you know, you personally. And if hopefully, if you're meeting, like, you're, you're meeting for a purpose, right? Like, why, you should be interacting with it. Why wouldn't that be more engaging than than watching somebody else that's, you know, this fictional thing that's actually happening? Um, And so, it's just really interesting. And usually, it's because, like, your, your whole point of, like, well, we're just being really kind to each other. And we're not... Uh, are nice to each other. We're just not talking about the things we need to talk about. And so it's just a formality. Uh, but yeah. if we're having those conflicts and those good debates back and forth, um, then it should be exciting. I know when Jeff and I were working together, there'd be times where we'd be going back and forth and be like, are you two okay? Like, are you guys like going to start throwing fists? You know, like, and we're like, no, we're just getting passionate about something, you know, and we're debating. And and people like, I just are not comfortable with that. So it's just... um it's just an interesting thing. I think we we deal with it a lot more up here in the Midwest. Like we have this Midwest nice thing, and the further north you get, the more worse it gets. Yeah, That's
2: uh, my experience. But Midwest nice, yeah. So um, one of my teammates is from New York, and she, I, I think that's the first time I've ever heard the expression Midwest nice. I was like, what Midwest nice? But I don't know. She's like, well, in New York, we there's a problem. We just address it right away. Like, uh, maybe. Horn honk or whatever. <laughs> Chicago is like I don't know. I live in Chicago here, and um, yeah, people are people are nice when you talk to them, but when they're in their car, they're just mean, evil bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that thing becomes a weapon, and people get cray. Wow. Anyway, yeah, Midwest nice. It's a problem. Um, the West Coast, they're just too laid back, and they're kind of. I've got a client out there. They start work at ten a.m. and they're they're sloppy. They, like not sloppy, but like they um they come back from me- they. they they're late to everything. It's a cultural thing at this company. So they come in late to work. Who knows when they leave work, but, you know, whatever. It's like 10 a.m., maybe I show up at 10.15. Oh, i got a meeting at 10 o'clock. I'm going to come at 10.30. Oh, did I miss anything? Eh. And nobody calls them out, and they just have this sort of, like, really laid-back culture, and I, I don't know. Not a lot of, I don't know where I was going with that. Just Yeah, I see a lot of different cultures in, in my travels. I got to go to Malaysia last year. That was interesting. Was oh,
1: that different than,
2: like, other areas? Surprisingly, not that terribly different. So what I'm finding in my travels, and maybe I'm I'm unique in this, but I don't really see as much of a difference between cultures as some people might think. I see more of a difference between individuals than I do different cultures. So people are people. I mean, yeah, sure, we grew up in different countries with different histories and different this and that, but some people are talkative. Some people are quiet. Um, some people... Are passionate about this. Some people are passionate about that, and there's a lot of differences between individuals. So I was in Sydney teaching a course, and I was going to go to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, to teach another course. And so the people in Sydney were warning me that, oh, the people in Kuala Lumpur, they can be a little bit, you know, quiet, and it's a cultural thing. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, we'll find out when I get there. And so then I went up there, and I taught the courses, and yes, some people were quiet, but some people were not. Some people were very active and engaged and talkative. And so within the same culture, I saw a vast different, or a wide spectrum of different personality types. What I also discovered was they had a management problem. They had a micromanagement problem that no one in the other regions knew about. And so I taught a course where there was an activity or something like that. We put everyone on, and one person jumped up and started delegating and dictating and setting it, like making orders basically. And I just kind of jokingly said, Oh, are you the manager? And everyone laughed. Because he was. And so it, it was. It became very clear what was really happening. There were some people that were quiet because they were afraid to speak up because they had a micromanagement problem. The people in the other countries didn't realize it, so they thought it was a cultural thing. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you get to start seeing other people and, and sort of the way they react to stuff and cu- the real cultural differences versus just individual or management problems. Um, sorry, so, uh, my so mind just trails like- into weird places. Huh?
0: No, that, that that's awesome because uh, it sparked a question. Were you just there for training, or were you also there for coaching afterwards? No, I was there for basically five days of training. Okay, so let's let's say you were there there for coaching, and that's a a, a potential red flag that you uncover, right? Uh, a micromanager not yeah. giving autonomy to the team. What what what's your next step there? Like, what? Oh, technically yeah. Do you go about working with them?
2: So while technically I wasn't a coach, I was working with their senior leadership team and giving them the feedback and intelligence I was gaining on the ground. So um, I brought that feedback back to their leadership team that one of the issues you have in this location is a micromanagement problem that likely has gone un, – un, uh, that you've been unaware of. And so they were unaware of it, and we talked about some options, and um, so I – that particular individual, I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to start. Like, I, I, I suspected there was a micromanagement problem um, based on those interactions, but just teaching a course, you don't really get to observe it. What I would have loved to have done is, is really work with some of those individuals and try to find out more about that micromanagement problem, where it comes from. Uh, what I often find is micromanagement comes from a lack of trust or even maybe a lack of sophistication on the manager's part, where they think a manager's job is to be a task manager or to be the one that makes all the decisions and to you know, time you on your lunch break to make sure that you don't use up too much lunch. If that's what you think being a manager is all about, wow, you've got you've got issues. Um, but if you have an organization that supports that kind of behavior, then you get team members who become disengaged and they become concerned. And so I know the organization didn't want that kind of management behavior. And so I would have probably tried to work with that manager a little bit more to figure out if it's a trust issue, if it's a lack of sophistication issue. Maybe they just have a different understanding of what management's all about and try to correct it at it, at that level. Like, what is your management philosophy? How do you treat people? What are the benefits of, of doing one way versus the other? Um, why do you
1: think that, that happens? Like, why, why do managers think that their job is, like, I need to manage people's time. I need to make sure that I'm utilizing every second of all the people that report to me?
2: I mean, if that's what they saw... So, I mean, you look at, look at history, right? Like a hundred years ago, management philosophy around manufacturing was, was different. People were the labor and management were the smart people. And so management would make the decisions and the laborers would just go do whatever they had to do. Um, I, I haven't read principles of scientific management by when or by, um, uh, Taylor, uh, not principles, Taylor, that, that's the one where he like, he gets into all the measurements. And yeah. mm-hmm. so, uh, I wish Jordan were on the call. He I believe has read that book and he's pretty thorough about it, but um, there was a time where management was thought of as sort of this timekeeper or measurement, you have got to find efficiencies and measure things. And while that is true in manufacturing, knowledge work isn't isn't quite the same. So where do, where does that kind of management come from? My guess is like just generational. Like uh, your boss was this way and they were 10 to 20 years ahead of you, so you learned their ways and that cultural transition over the years, it's changed somewhat but it's still influenced by the generation before us. So things are changing pretty rapidly in knowledge work. I think maybe the last 10, 20, 30 years, we've made much jar- a much larger shift between, or from that traditional kind of top-down management to bottom-up intelligence. And I think that's, that's really taking over a lot of companies where they, they realize it's beneficial for people at the lower levels of the organization to bubble up knowledge. Organizations are becoming flatter and flatter. And uh, that traditional career path is kind of going away in a lot of organizations, um, at least the best ones. So, there's a interesting corollary
0: here that um, actually, Jeff, you you might know because of your brother. But, um, and, and I, I'm going to speak for army structure because that's that's the structure that I know of. But um, their army kind of breaks down into two key. Components, which is non commissioned officers, and commissioned officers, and lower enlisted. So like your 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 privates, your PFCs, private first class, your specialists. Those are your lower enlisted. Um, they, they they're the doers of the army. Um, then you've got your non commissioned officers, which are um, more seasoned, but they're essentially your sergeants, right? Um, sergeant, sergeant first class, sergeants major, etc. All all those, and then commissioned officers. Those are your, your lieutenants, captains, majors, colonels, generals, etc. And so where that was brought over from, oh, and I'm kind of embarrassed, I don't remember, but uh, there was a a famous uh, German uh, teacher, essentially, in military warfare, came over and during the the, uh, War for Independence, um, trained Washington's soldiers, and that's where, you know, kind of the, the basis for that structure comes from. but. Uh, where, where i 'm going with this is that that breakdown between um, commissioned officers and non commissioned officers was very much education level based so your your officers were were typically more educated uh, maybe some type of higher schooling um, and then your lower enlisted obviously little to no and then they were educated through the army which got them to uh, non commissioned officer status or or rank i should say um but over time, so I, when I came in, I was signal officer. Signal you can think of it as the IT branch of the army, right? Um, we're we're setting up the networks, right? We're setting up the the radios. We're any, anything that has electricity flowing through it is pretty much our responsibility to handle. So we have lower enlisted c- coming in that are essentially network engineers. Like if they were to translate into civilian career, they would be your your. Um, configuring the networks at your at your organizations they'd be it they'd be fixing the computers etc and so it's it's essentially a, a four-year degree that they're coming in with that they're they're learning from and that breakdown between um commissioned officers being the the smart people or the educated people um completely starts to to break down and it's really just um branching off that it's it still there's a, a technical component from what people are trained with but um, that that gap is is very quickly diminishing there and it's it's an interesting correlation between managers and doers in a civilian world where there was a time absolutely where managers likely were just more educated better educated and um, the doers weren't but that that is definitely not now and probably wasn't even twenty twenty five years ago mm-hmm. but that rate of separation of, of knowledge has has rapidly diminished over the past you know 10 to 15 years
1: yeah I think you hit the nail on the head there it's it's because we we structure our organizations um, under the assumption that those management skills those knowledge skills are scarce but they're not scarce anymore they're actually really abundant and so there's a different way to organize and I think most organize. You know, wherever you can get to more of a network type structure, or where information can flow more rapidly and faster, like that's going to just be better in the future. Um, and I think managers that embrace that and just say, "How can I be that gardener and support and connect you to the right people?" Um, are the ones that are going to be the more and more successful, especially in knowledge work. That's that's just required, I think, these days.
2: Yeah, that, that's kind of fascinating. Um, we talk about the separation between of knowledge between management and, and the doers. In a lot of organizations, the doers have more education than the managers. Right. So how do you manage people that are smarter than you? <laughs> Certainly not the way you used to. Yeah. Right. Um, and when you're talking about knowledge work, everyone has knowledge. I mean, you're hiring lots of college-educated people. There are a few people that don't have um, that education. So I suppose in knowledge work, implicitly, there, there isn't as much of a gap, if any, uh, maybe a little bit of a gap around, like, well, I've been here for five years, I know company policy, and I know all the people that I need to know to get work done, so maybe your network has improved, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So the, the world of management kind of has to change and kind of has to a- adapt to this new reality, and um, it's just not happening fast enough. It really, really isn't.
0: So... There was, there was one other kind of timely post that you had made the other day, and I'd love for you to, to unpack it a little bit here. One of so, my
2: pot-stirring posts?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at what point in an organization's growth does policy re- replace trust in employees?
2: Yeah, I actually got some interesting feedback from uh, another uh, gentleman that I've, I've talked to a few times out of, like, Minnesota. And uh, he said it's somewhere actually around 50 people. Once a company hits about 50 people you start having to manage it a little bit differently and, and maybe trust doesn't work as well and policy starts taking over. And once you hit like two or three hundred people, I think he said, it really changes again because it's less of a family and it's it becomes more of a corporation at that point. And he I asked him for some sources and he didn't have any, but I could Google it. Anyway, uh he I, I, I gotta do my research on that a little more. I was just curious like what people think because um I'm I own a small company and so we operate with a lot of trust because I don't want to deal with managing policy. I don't want to deal with holding people accountable to policy. So in order for this to function at this point, uh, trust has to be high, but expectations need to be clear. You can trust people, but if, they, if you don't have similar expectations, you're trusting them to do what? Whatever they want, whatever they think is right, and what I think is right might be different than what someone else thinks is right. So eventually companies establish policy and like, you know, we come to work at 8 o'clock, we leave at 5 p.m., we have lunch at noon, and you start to create this structure where people feel contained and they don't feel like they can be individuals anymore. So what, where is that point between here and there? Is it necessary to get to a point where you have a lot of policy? Like, for example, we, our vacation policy is technically, by our HR terms, unlimited. Now, it's not really unlimited, it's just not tracked. So we take vacation when we want to. We just make it transparent that we're going to be out on vacation for certain days. I don't want to count the days. I don't want to have to manage it and put it into a spreadsheet. If someone quits the company, I don't want to have to go back and figure out, well, how many hours or how many days of vacation do you have remaining. It's just it's excessive. Uh, for me, it's, it's excessive management. So that's why we do it. But at the same time, if somebody reads the words unlimited vacation and they think, oh, I can take six months off. No. So I have to set the expectation that while we have what's called unlimited, the real expectation is take it when you need. I don't want to track it. I don't want to know if it's a sick day or a vacation day. However, work has to get done. So we we know what work has to be done. We know we have client-facing responsibilities. Uh, no, you can't take six months off of work. Um, just you, try to set those expectations about what unlimited means. What's that?
1: Do you have help? Help? Um, I guess support that by giving more transparency into like, hey, here's like actual like financials of the company, and like if you take six months off, mm-hmm. uh, we can't pay you this amount, or we are going to be losing money, <laughs> and you're not worth us, it to have you as an employee, right? Like you just kind of like I think the financials can be a lot more transparent in a smaller company, and it's like, hey, there's only a few of us. If one of us takes advantage of these policies or the lack of policies, we're all going to have to pick up the slack, and I don't want to do that to my, you know, group of people here that I work every day in and out with.
2: Yeah, we. I've never connected those dots. I would if I had to, but we are pretty transparent about revenue, for example. So every quarter, we we go over the performance of the company, um, over that last quarter, and then year to dates, and in some uh, at year end, I always do sort of a how we're tracking on on growth, how the whole year went. Um, sometimes do a comparison to the last year, but we're only three years old, so it's not a whole lot to compare to. Um, uh, Yeah, so, I mean, we we do have a lot of transparency, even for people that aren't what I would consider management people. But everyone in the company knows kind of how we're doing. Um, But, yeah, I, I... If I had to connect the dots between vacation and and that, I would would certainly point it out.
1: And maybe people do because you are that transparent about just how things are going and they just kind of like, yeah, "Yeah, I can't take four weeks off, you know, and just like abandon this client because it's going to affect the financials and I don't want the company to do poorly. Right. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I mean, we we don't have a lot of policy. I do have an HR group that we work with that kind of helps keep me in in line because you, you do need to deal with human some human resources topics uh, just because there are some laws you have to follow. But um, yeah, our policies are designed to be as minimal as possible. We don't have a drug and alcohol policy except for just don't come to work wasted. <laughs> like don't be wasted at a client um that's pretty much it but like if you're drinking at work and it's like a normal social function that's cool like if you want to have a beer teaching a class fine just don't do weird stuff that's that's really the the general spirit here and some of the it's
0: interesting you bring that one up because that was um at, at a previous organization you know that was a lot of consternation around just the the drinking and so um Sorry, I had another idea just popping into my head about, about that, but it tangentially related. But um, it, it was just weird that at what level do you... I get like, sorry, my brain's all over the place, but I get a little frustrated because it's is at what point can you just not count on a person to be an adult? Like, have, have some basic things. Like, to your point, you can't show up to work wasted. Okay, like that should probably be common sense like do we really need a policy in here that says that or can we just say you know hey if if uh, i am going to answer my own question cuz this is just kind of <laughs> stupid that we we have to have that but um, by the by the same token is okay so we we create that policy and then you get to the point where every every exception has been now had a policy to create create it and so maybe you've got 20 pages worth of policy of proper and improper internet usage, right? Like, at at what level do these things just become stupid that every exception has now need to be tracked in part of a policy versus just, I don't know, general blanket statements like, don't be dumb, don't look at porn on on your company computer, right? (laughs) Like, don't do that because that's stupid. Uh, But no, now we've got
2: like this... You, you want to, go ahead, Rob. Oh, I want to riff on that for a second. So it's interesting you bring up the porn thing because so I, I have I, I have a friend from a foreign country and we were discussing just differences between that country and the United States and I was just curious about some of the differences. One thing I would say is is maybe not uniquely American, but one thing about us is we have this Puritan culture where sex is thought of as like oh God, we can't talk about that, we can't look at that at work. But how do you think we all got here? We were born because two people had sex. And this happens every day. This is a normal human behavior. It's much like shitting. You have to do it, or you will go a little crazy. And if you're not doing it with someone else, you're going to do it by yourself. Why can't you watch porn at work? Why couldn't you rub one out at your desk? <laughs> Can you imagine if, it, if culturally we were totally okay with this sex thing? Because we're okay with watching gun violence on TV, and that's maybe that's influencing our, our gun culture and our gun problems, but forget that. We're okay with murder. We're just not okay with beating off at our desk. So I'm all for porn being okay to watch at work.
0: Wow. You're you're definitely a bit more extreme uh, than, than I am. But Woo. But I think the spirit of what you're talking to is an interesting topic. Like, where did we draw the line? Where did we draw the line and say... In video games, it's okay to run around and shoot people in the head, and that that's an acceptable form of violence to us. In movies, we we, we see it; it's yep. it's okay. It, that is an acceptable form of violence. Even like Mad Magazine, right? It, it's cartoon, but I remember like the covers of Mad, and like dude's head would be exploding and all that. And like we we've, we've just as a culture, we we accept that um, f- for better or worse. Gun violence is is, is certainly an issue and, and a hot topic in the news, and we, we've to a certain degree come to accept that um I remember being a depressed wreck um after the first school shooting like I was in tears literally and now El Paso and it's like yep it sucks it really really sucks but just certainly not to the the same degree that I felt a, a decade or so so um I, I guess I'm less interested in rubbing one out at the desk so to speak or <laughs> watching porn on a work computer um it's not something that I would do, um, but um, more to the spirit of it, it's kind of interesting to think about where where we found things to be socially acceptable and not. I think another very small instance of that is littering and people throwing cigarette butts out their window. Like We socially accept that it is acceptable for people to throw cigarette butts out of their car window when they're f- flying down the expressway. Um, we socially accept that it's okay to go out and have a few beers after work when we know that any type of alcohol in your system impairs your ability to react um in situations uh so up to a certain threshold um sorry i think we're going down a rabbit hole with this but well, i think i'll it's, tie it it's, back,
1: it's, for, back us for us here so we we're talking, policy yeah uh, we, we were talking earlier about um conflict too right with different levels of conflict and especially in the midwest like we have this midwest nicety but i think a lot of times people don't want to deal with the conflict so they they create policies to deal with the conflict so then it's just like oh it says here on Article One Two Four Eight Nine that you actually can't look at anything like this on your computer, and you did that. And now I just I don't have to actually have a conversation about judgment calls. I just say, here's the policy, and sorry, like I'm writing you up or whatever you're doing. So it's just like because people don't want to have to have conversations or hard conversations, uh, they just want to they want an easy out, and so they create these policies. That's my that's my theory, I guess. Especially as companies get uh, larger and larger, they just think hey we we don't really trust all these people cuz there's so many now like we need to put something in place so people aren't dumb and we don't want to have hard conversations with people so and i and what i've seen in small organizations or organizations that have grown quickly is those people that were that first 30 like they resist those policies like i mean Like it's the plague. Like they are the fighting Mm -hmm. that stuff like tooth and nail. And then you get to that 150, and those people are like, "Hey, we're gonna like they're ready to take that next step." And they're like, "We're not gonna go. We're with those 130." And like everyone else is like, "What's the big deal? Like we're now a 500 person company." You know, Um, this is what they do. And those those people from those you know that 30 and that 150, they just they just won't tolerate it. And a lot of them leave because they don't they don't like that type
0: of culture that comes. So do you think that goes hand in hand though with? Organization expanding and structure. So let's let's take a a non typical example, and let's just say we're mini orgs within an org, or more of a nexus type organization, right? So we've got little areas that are self self contained profit centers, for instance, inside of an organization. Do you think you'd still have the same? want desire for those types of policies or do you think it would be unique to each mini org that they would just figure out what is acceptable for their microchasm of a culture? I think if they had full accountability for like
1: financials and like whether they exist or not within the org, they probably would just figure that stuff out and they would say, well, you know if you're sitting there and you're and you're always coming in at ten. Um, we may, do we need a policy or do we just need to have a conversation? They probably just have a conversation because it's like, when you come in at 10 and leave at four, that doesn't provide as much value as we need from you, you know, certain person let's have a conversation about that, you know? Um, and so, so I think you're right. I think they would self-regulate as long as they had the accountability to deliver as a unit.
2: Yeah. I think expectations are important and policy is a way to set them, but it's just more precise. Like you may not watch you porn at work. Okay, that's a pretty clear rule. Um, how about, in general, uh, do not violate cultural norms at work. What are those cultural norms? Well, we don't beat off at our desks. That's, you know, we, we, we think of that as weird. Uh, don't drink excessively at work. We also think of that as weird. So, you know, there are times when people are going to violate the expectation, even though they didn't violate policy, or they violated policy, but they stuck to the general expectation. So where am I going with that? I mean, sure, don't come, in, come into work late maybe that's a rule. Okay, I don't come into work 15 minutes late. But what if I was actually working at home for the last three hours and I went to go pick up something for the office and that's why I'm late for work? Are you holding me accountable to the policy and the rule or the general expectation at that point? Because I was being a team player, I was working hard for the company and and doing what's right to to make us successful. I just violated a rule.
1: And I think that's what we all want, right? Like when you have the best intent, you don't want to have to go get five levels of signature to go do something of approval. It's like, just do the right thing and trust people, right? And I think that's what discourages so many people, too, in organizations.
2: I'd, I'd love to know when when that's when that breaks down. Like, does it really break down as a company grows or do people just get lazy? Do people just no longer want to have those conversations about expectations and they just want to write it down and not have to think about it anymore? Is that, yeah, so I, I don't know. I want to, be, the naive sort of idealist in, my, in me wants to believe that it can scale effectively, uh, setting general expectations and holding people accountable to expectations, but not necessarily policy at, at scale. Um, I just, I, I love, I got to do the research. So I was going to write a blog post about that, and so where I started with that blog post is rather than write a blog post no one's going to read, I started with the topic and posted it just to see if it generated interest. And so far, it's not generated as much interest as it as it has interested me. So maybe I won't write that blog post.
0: <laughs> That's a really cool example of an MVP right there. Yeah. Um, why Why bother writing a full blog post that nobody's going to be interested in? Just throw something out on LinkedIn and see if people are interested first.
2: Yeah, and sometimes the posts I put on LinkedIn actually be, uh, inspire me to create blog posts um, based on some of the things people say. But. Um, yeah, I, I like to write about fringe topics. I like to write about stuff no one else is talking about or no one else is thinking about. But then again, if no one's thinking or talking about it, are they going to find it in a Google search and end up reading my blog post? <laughs> so to some degree, you got to, I don't know, if you want to be read, you got to be talking about peop- things people are interested in. So um, yeah, it was an experiment to gauge interest.
0: Actually, so un- unrelated to anything, but I was going to ask you the question earlier when we were getting ramped up. Uh how come you uh, didn't make the the trip out to agile 2019 this year
2: oh uh, let's see so it is a damn expensive conference to attend <laughs> um, last year I was a speaker so it you know they paid for my hotel and um, I just basically wrote off the the plane ticket so it was the hotels usually are the most expensive piece of a trip uh, flights a few hundred bucks um, and it's a you know week of time I had uh, a couple, I had two training classes this week so Those are the reasons. I mean, frankly, I go to a lot of Agile conferences. I speak at probably six a year, and it it becomes a lot more like preaching to the choir, or you're just hearing the same things over and over with a slightly different spin, and every speaker is trying to have a slightly more controversial topic to get you in the room, and then you get there, and it's just the same thing. So um, I've been personally trying to get more involved in uh, conferences that are not Agile related. So I'm going to be speaking at a PMI conference, like their global event in um, Philadelphia, And I think I might be the only person talking about anything related to this world. Um, And yeah, a different group of people. I'll hear some different things. Um, The PM, the PMI groups that I've been involved with so far, they have a very different understanding of what agile means than we do. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting, but scary because they also have a lot of influence and they're talking to executives and they're spreading these misconceptions. Um, Yeah. So those are the reasons. I mean, I'm, I've, been going to these conferences now for five or six years i'm not really hearing a lot of new stuff it's kind of fun to hear some of the big name speakers if i'm already there but yeah a lot of them are targeted towards new people that are learning um you know a few years into this world they want to go to a conference and learn about some things so a lot of people use these conferences as a proxy for training or as a replacement for training and i guess i just i don't know i learn from different sources now reading different books um Trying to connect us to different industries, and most of the books and most of the things I'm learning now around business management and business ownership and growing software products more from the business side, and then feeding in everything I know about the agile space and technology uh, to kind of complement where those pieces are missing in, in my education, or where where they're missing in what I'm reading. The latest book I'm reading is uh, called "The The Hard Thing About Hard Things." Mm. So it's, yeah, mostly about how to be a CEO of a software as a services company at scale and all the things that you'll run into as, as you start to run a company like that. Um, some good ideas in it, but not the stuff I'm going to hear at an agile conference.
0: Were you going to say something,
1: Jeff? Yeah, I was just going to say, so that's the book you're reading now. I know you read a lot of books. What's the,
0: what, <laughs> that's one of the books yeah, I'm reading now. <laughs> what
2: looks what, 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 like, hey, you got to read this book right
1: now. Like It's really, really good. I've read this one the last few months.
2: So I I got to get to know people before I say which book they should read. Like, what are your career goals? What is your aspiration? What are you passionate about? And then I might have a recommendation. So mm-hmm. I can't just blanketly recommend one book for everyone. Sure. Um, but for me, on the path that I'm on in terms of just business related topics, uh, books that are probably must-haves. If you're trying to build a software as a services company, that that's a great book. Um, the next one I want to read is Crossing the Chasm, which is more around, from my understanding, like how you would... How you would get a product to go mainstream, and yep. the steps you got to take to get there, from I believe a software product standpoint.
1: Yeah, so I read that one not too long ago, and I was like, "It's okay," but like it felt dated, and it is like really? 10, twelve years old, something like that. Now I don't know, something in nails range, but it was okay. I thought that, like you know, I have a rating system; I would give it three stars. So uh, <laughs> I thought it was okay. Three out of five. Yeah, three out of five.
2: What uh, what what did you feel was dated? I mean, maybe I won't read it if it's that bad.
1: Um, it's not, I don't say that it's that bad. It's just... Um, it felt old to me, just the way it was read. Uh, I don't know, from what I'm reading, I read a lot of stuff that's kind of, you know, in the last couple of years being published, and I could just tell just the way it was re- The stories, uh, things that were happening, the, the examples they were giving, they were just from a while ago. Gotcha. Um, one that I, you know, read that, I don't know, it came out a few years ago, and I just never read it, and just read it recently, was Lean UX, and it's awesome. Like, I'm like, everybody who works with any kind of product development team should read Lean UX. Um, It's just a really, really good book about how you validate value delivery um, in the market. And I just think that so many teams are missing that. So I thought that was just a really great book that I've read recently.
2: Yeah, I read that five years ago, I I remember some of the concepts in there. Um, But I mean, in general, like, you want to eliminate waste. And when you, when you build up a waterfall organization where we've siloed into you people do the design work, we, we, create, we have to create artifacts that get passed down the chain. So do you really have to create those artifacts? Do you really have to create wireframes to the extent that you do in order for the next phase in the process to begin? Not necessarily. So you know, when you're working more closely together, what things do you no longer have to do? Do you really have to have this, these full-blown high-fidelity designs or can you just work with somebody and design it as it's being built? Um, anyway, yeah, that, that's a good book. Um, I mean, if you want to be a good agile practitioner, if you want to be an agile coach or a consultant um, in this space, I think some great books to read would be about where it came from. Like, read about read the Toyota Way. That's a great book I read in business school. Read the goal. Yep. Um, I know people say, oh, read Phoenix Project. But no, forget forget. The watered down and the adapted versions of these ideas. Go back to the source ideas. Um, really understand how to look at a system and how to optimize it from, from a top level. So there's lots of books around that. Uh, people-related books. So uh, it's been on my list for a while. I, I, I want to write a book about the psychology of being a scrum master and um, all the psychology topics that you really need to be successful in it. So um, a lot of what you're doing as a Scrum Master, even Agile Coach, is around people-related things where people are having conflict, people are messy, people um, don't know how to express emotions or how to work with one another. And these are the types of things that are major impediments in organizations that most people aren't trying to remove. It's just like... Oh, send Johnny to HR. Johnny was being mean. No, that's, that's maybe not the first approach. Maybe we talk to Johnny and find out what's got him bothered that caused him to lash out. Um, and you're not going to do that if you don't have the guts to address people conflict or people issues. So uh, there was a talk I was giving around the country for a while called Your Agile Team Needs a Therapist. And it, <laughs> the, whole cons, the whole idea for this was just I, I found myself acting like a therapist being a team's Agile coach where I'd sit with them in a room and we'd talk about what just happened and, and why there was some sort of thing brewing. And they would just unload on me for an hour all these people problems. And I would work through them with that person, you know, what, what are some steps you're going to take? And they would try to find something. And then ultimately I'd check back with them a week later. And they would come and sit on my, co- my table again, or not my table, my um, what was it, like chases or those day beds. Yeah, I didn't really have one of those in an office, but I should have. It really felt like I was acting like a therapist, so that forced me to read more about some um, topics that you'll find in marriage counseling books or in just general psychology books, and apply them as an agile coach. And it it seemed to help because these these people impediments were impacting this team. So uh, yeah, hopefully in the next few years I'll I'll finally get around to writing this book. I'd, I'd love to write on the topic, um, but. Th- How did I get here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I just want to jump in real fast because you had mentioned something um, when you were going through your books, The Goal versus The Phoenix Project. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fan of both of them, but I think you really hit it on the the nail on the head in there was if you think about the the situation that the main characters are going in, I can't remember, let's just say John, um, in The Goal, his, his wife is literally leaving him in that book. Like, that's how bad his work life has affected his personal life. And I think there's there's some of that in the Phoenix Project, but to, to exactly what you're saying is like, if you just ignore the individuals and interactions side of this, like fuck all good luck with whatever process, framework, tool you're going to try and, and solve your problem with. If you're ignoring the fact that You know, people are complex and you have to deal or I shouldn't say deal with you have to pay the right amount of attention and effort into fixing those things first before you worry about, Okay, you know, why aren't you coming to the daily scrum or whatever that other thing is that you're going to try and deal with. So I'm right there with you. I think the goal is a great book. And I think because it it really talks about the the impact outside of work that your work life is going to have on you.
2: Yeah, it's, it's tough for a lot of people to completely separate the two. You, you come home from work and you take that drama home with you and then you unload it on your family members. Or if you're happy at work, you come home and you're positive and vice versa. You've got a crappy home life and you're bringing that baggage to work. So, um, uh, yeah, they, they definitely impact one another. And these are all these are all people problems. Um, to me, a scrum a good Scrum Master is not only somebody who understands Scrum and all those kinds of things, but can work with the people that are making the software. Um
1: yeah, I would say that most of the problems that you deal with as a Scrum Master um, are going to be people problems. The very rare, absolutely. I mean, most most technical problems get solved by the team, and they can figure a way to do that stuff. Like we built these kind of products, and you know, someone's done this before. It's the people stuff that's really, really hard. And yeah, those skills are sometimes hard to find and hard to filter through when you're going through the interview
2: process too.
0: So, uh, is there anything, Rob, that you'd like to plug?
2: plug oh wow Um, if you're in Chicago the people side of software is a meetup that uh, my company hosts we every month like every four weeks we basically have a different speaker coming in and uh, talking about usually people related people related topics Um, your podcast this has been fun (laughs) Uh, appreciate it I can't say I've heard a lot of audio podcasts, so I don't know what to compare it to, but this was an enjoyable way to spend my Saturday morning slightly hungover after going out with some friends last night. (laughs) Good for you, man.
1: Yeah, so that just kind of gets us into another topic. So we just want to thank all the listeners that are out there. Um, We've put this out there. Jeff and I had gotten some feedback that they liked hearing, the conversations we were having. Um, we started inviting people. This was an experiment and, uh, we've gotten a lot of people to give us a lot of great feedback. We really appreciate that feedback. We appreciate all the people that are sharing this. And we just ask that, um, if you find value in this podcast, that you continue to share it with people.
2: Hit that share button. Cool. Cool. All right. Thank you
0: very much, Rob. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire.
1: We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.